Good morning. This is the word of the Lord from Leviticus 17, 1 through 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron, his sons, and all the Israelites and tell them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Anyone from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, sheep, or goat in the camp or slaughters it outside the camp, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before his tabernacle, that person will be considered guilty. He has shed blood and it is to be cut off from his people. This is so the Israelites will bring the Lord the sacrifices they have been offering in the open country. They are to bring them to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting and offer them as fellowship sacrifices to the Lord. Anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who eats any blood, I will turn against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you and no alien who resides among you may eat blood. Amen. Thank you, Jennifer. Definitely not the worst scripture reading anyone could be assigned from Leviticus, but... Uh, already raises some questions. Who's eating blood? Um, if you are new to the church, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us. And we have an extremely high value and appreciation for the Word of God, not because it is uh, a, a, an old, dry, dusty book of rules, but because in the Word of God, we encounter the living God, the God who is. Amen? And so we always love to open the Scriptures. We love to go through books of the Bible. We are currently going through the book of Leviticus. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but next Sunday will be Leviticus chapter 18, which we want to make sure our children's ministry is fully staffed for. Um, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read Leviticus 18 in preparation and see if you even want to come to church next week. You do. Short answer, you do. But it's going to be interesting. So uh, if you're able to volunteer and serve in the kids' ministry, that'd be a huge blessing to make sure that they can hear the message of the gospel in an age-appropriate way and to make sure that all y'all can hear uncomfortable things next week. But it's good because it's from the Word of God. Also, real quick, uh, this has nothing to do with anything uh, that I'm going to teach on or preach on today. This is just a pure cry for help. Uh, my wife, Erin Lynn, who was up here uh, doing the welcome and all that good stuff a moment ago, has instituted something in our house called Ryan Gosling September, in which we're watching Ryan Gosling movies. I, ha- I have made it 18 years without seeing The Notebook. And I had to watch The Notebook the other day. Have you guys seen this movie? Oh my goodness. Security. All I'm saying is the devil is at work in my life and attacking us, and so just pray for me. It's, or join me. I don't know. If Gosling September catches on, uh, you can take credit for something. So anyways, that has nothing to do with anything. Today, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 17, something that's way more important than any movie Ryan Gosling has ever made, Uh, this chapter of the Bible in which the authors of Leviticus are going to take us into what is known as the holiness code. 
Leviticus thus far has been all about God's presence setting up in power and in glory in the tabernacle, and there's a priesthood, and there are sacrifices to make it possible so that God's people can come into God's presence uh, without ritual impurity and without sin so that they can be near to him. But here in Leviticus 17, it turns, and God's holiness is now going to go out from the tabernacle into every conceivable sphere and area of life. Everything from your money to your romantic life to your property, every single thing, God wants his people to live unique, distinct, set-apart, and holy lives. Can I get an amen from anybody in the church here? It's still the same. So Leviticus 17 is a pivot. We're now going into the holiness code, and so we're going to talk about blood today. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that we can open the pages of the scriptures and you communicate to us, Lord. We thank you that your word is alive and it's active and that, and that through the pages of the scripture, we get to know you and we get to be changed. And so, Lord, I pray for myself that you would guide my words and and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of the scripture. And Lord, would you give each and every single one of us a, a reflective and a receptive heart to hear what it is, Holy Spirit, that you want to say to us personally. So be with us now, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, uh, boy, we sure talk about blood a lot in the church, don't we? I was just thinking about, you know, the scripture reading, no drinking blood and splattering the blood in the tabernacle and uh, multiple, I think three of the four songs we just got done singing talk about blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. So much talk about blood. In fact, really, in my life, this is like the only place I'd really talk about this much blood. Maybe you're a medical professional, maybe you're a butcher, and you interact with blood, but I think that for most of us, anybody that works kind of an office job, or maybe you work on cars, and you're like, well, there's oil, is that the blood of the car? I don't know, but like, we just don't interact with blood that very much. And in fact, the way that we talk about blood, can I just say it? It's kind of weird. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Like, I have, I have, I have been raising children for 17, almost 18 years, And I have had my children bleed on me, and I have never thanked them for it. Thank you, Hadley, for the blood applied to my furniture from your from your forehead wound or whatever. Like we just it's a weird thing. We spend this much time talking about blood. And actually, if I could even go one step further, when for most of us, when blood shows up, it's not good news. It's not good news. I remember um Years ago at a church softball game back in Alaska, the church I was a worship pastor had a summer camp. We were playing a softball game and someone hit a grounder and I was in left field and there was a teenage girl. I'd actually taught her guitar lessons and she was playing second base and the grounder took a weird hop and it came and just bashed her right in the nose, ended up like killing one of the teeth and just blood everywhere. And I started like just running straight towards her like... Um, like the word hero comes to mind, right? And I'm just like, I'm trying to go and, and, and this really strange interaction with a guy who was on, on the team and he was, he was a medical professional. He stopped me, he like grabbed me. He's like, no, 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 blood, it's bad. Blood is bad. Blood is not our friend. And it's like, I'm just trying to help this kid out. Like she's hurting. I'm just trying to get over there and like put a hand on her shoulder or ask her what, you know, if she's like conscious or whatever. And he's like, blood is bad. You don't know what's in her blood. You don't know. I'm like, I don't know. She's the homeschool kid from Alaska. How bad could her blood be? But he... 
he wanted to get gloves. He wanted to do it all kind of right according to the medical procedures that he had been trained in as a, as a medical professional. It's like blood, when it shows up, it's just this bad thing. But when we think of blood, we think of death. But Leviticus 17 literally says the exact opposite. It says that blood is life. I've been slowly reading through a book uh, by a, a, an author, a, a man named Dr. Paul Brand. He spent most of his life and career in India uh, working with people who suffer from leprosy, modern leprosy, Hansen's disease. And he wrote this book called Fearfully and Wonderfully. If you're looking for a good read, I highly recommend this book because he takes all of his medical knowledge and all of his medical wisdom and he applies it to all of these spiritual concepts of, of, of blood and breath and skin and the body of Christ. It's a super fascinating book. But I I read this section a while ago, and I've been holding on to it for today. Paul Brand says this. He says, although modern worshipers may feel uncomfortable with the fact, the Christian faith is inescapably blood-based. Old Testament writers spell out the details of blood sacrifices, and their New Testament counterparts overlay those rituals with theological interpretations. And daily or weekly, monthly, whenever, depending on your denomination, we are called upon to commemorate Christ's death with a ceremony centered in his blood. The Lord's table, we practice it weekly. And when you come forward, we have asked the servers to literally look you in the eye and say, the blood of Christ spilled for you. I know that some of you don't know what they're saying because the music is usually playing and have had that. That's what they're saying. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. I admit at the outset that I sometimes find the associations of the blood symbol distasteful. But I wonder, has something been lost over the centuries? Something foundational? Something that these these biblical writers were clued in on that maybe we're missing? He says, medically, blood signifies life and not death. Blood feeds and sustains every cell in the body with its precious nutrients. When it seeps away, life falters. So he wonders, has our modern use of the symbol of blood, primarily focused on death, strayed so far from the original meaning? And I think that Dr. Brand is onto something because it's right here in Leviticus 17. Blood is important because blood is life. Life. No blood, no life. I'm not a medical professional, but I know at least that much. Now, what I want to do, I want to just walk us straight through Leviticus 17. It's not a super long chapter, but I want you to see all this talk about life in some different layers, and then I want to apply it to our lives uh, in some some ways that I'm going to invite you to really kind of reflect on your life, okay? Think about the idea of life. Think about its connection to blood. Let's dive in. Leviticus 17, the Lord spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron, his sons, and all the Israelites, and tell them this is what the Lord commanded. Anyone from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox, sheep, or goat out there in the camp, or slaughters it outside of the camp, way far out, instead of bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle, 
that person will be considered guilty. He has shed blood and is to be cut off from the people. So quick question. Is this saying like you can't, uh, uh, you know, go hunting? Is this saying you can't uh, butcher an animal and and serve it to your family as a feast? The answer is no. And we're going to see a little bit later in Leviticus, those things are explicitly allowed. And there's a a parallel passage in Deuteronomy, I believe it's in chapter 7, where you're allowed to go hunting, you're allowed to prepare a meal for your family, you're allowed to butcher an animal. What's going on here is something else. Verse 5, this is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifices, uh uh-oh, that they have been offering out in the open country. So they've been doing other sacrifices away from the tabernacle that they were not to do. They're supposed to bring these sacrifices to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and you're supposed to offer them as a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord, right? That that fellowship offering where we sit and share a meal together, and it's all shared, and it's all good. Then the priest will splatter the blood on the Lord's altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting and burn the fat as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, God loves barbecue. Amen? Amen? Come on. God loves barbecue. They must no longer offer the sacrifices to the goat demons that they have prostituted themselves with. This is a permanent statute for them throughout their generations. So this first chunk is about worship. The people of Israel had been living in Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness of Sinai. They're going to be living in the land of Canaan. And all of the peoples in the ancient Near East, from Egypt all the way up through the Levant and all that whole region, everybody worshipped lots and lots of different gods. And the basic mentality in paganism is, well, you got to make sacrifices to all the gods because you never know which one of the gods is going to get mad at you. So you got to cover your bases. You got to cover your rear end. You got to make sure none of the gods are going to get upset with you. So you just offer lots of sacrifices. Here, the Lord is speaking to Moses and saying, some of these people, these Israelites, they're doing that. They're offering sacrifices to these other deities, these rival gods, these false gods, and they need to stop doing that because it is not from these goat demons or these false gods that they're going to get their life. Bring those sacrifices to the tabernacle so that we can be together, have a fellowship offering. You tracking with me, church? Okay, continuing on. Uh, it says, anyone who doesn't bring that will be cut off. By the way, that's a, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty strong uh, uh, penalty, is it not? Like removed, cut off, away from your people. This, this, I will be your God, you will be my people. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. But if you're out there worshiping false gods, you will be cut off. The Lord says, I, I, have, I have made an exclusive marriage covenant with you. Don't go, it says prostitute. Don't go be prostituting yourselves with other gods. I'm your husband, the Lord says. Verse 10, anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them, uh, I, I kept reading that and just thinking like aliens, like little green men, but it means like foreigners, non-Jewish people, sojourners who want to connect themselves to the people of Israel. The same rule applies no matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Do not eat blood. I will turn against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, again, you guys seeing that this is an important thing, none of you, And no foreigner who resides among you may eat any blood. Two quick side notes. Side note number one. 
This is not about a rare steak, okay? The Lord likes his steak cooked medium rare. That's the truth, okay? The goat demons like it well done. That's, that's how they like it, okay? The, 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 the juice that comes out of a, a rare steak is not what we're talking about. We're actually talking about blood, like actual blood, life blood that's in the meat. But the second side note is that this law against eating blood was actually given a long time before the Torah was ever given to Moses or the people of Israel. It was given to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. This is a universal human commandment. God says all humanity, this is not just for the Jewish people, this is for Jew and Gentile alike, before there was the Torah, no eating blood. You fast forward way later down to Acts chapter 15, when all these non-Jewish people start following Jesus as Messiah, and they're like, well, how Jewish do they have to be? Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to observe Sabbath? Do they have to do this and that and the other thing? And James, the apostle, stands up and says, nope, they just have to refrain from sexual immorality, not worship false gods, and not eat blood. It's the same commandment in Acts 15. It's the same commandment in Genesis 9. It's the same commandment in Leviticus 17. This is a binding commandment of the Lord for all humanity. Blood is to be treated sacred and not eaten or drunk. Verse 13. Hunting's okay, though. Any Israelite or alien residing among them who hunts down a wild animal or a bird uh, that may be eaten, like one of the clean animals, it's totally fine. Hunt it down. That's to- that, we're not talking about that. You just have to drain its blood and cover that blood with dirt. Since the life of every creature is its blood, I've told the Israelites, you're not to eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it must be cut off. Treat the animals that you hunt humanely. Drain their blood. Respect the fact that they have given their life now for you to be able to eat that animal and sustain your life. And it goes on, verse 15. Every person, native or resident alien, who eats an animal that died a natural death or was mauled by wild beasts, like, you can eat them. Roadkill's okay. Our friends from Tennessee are so happy, right? You can, you find an animal that died or maybe it was, you know, killed by a, by a lion. You can eat it. You just have to wash your clothes and bathe with water, which is also good advice for our friends from Tennessee. And he will remain, okay, I'm sorry, I'm done, I'm done. He will remain unclean until evening and then he will be clean. But if he does not wash his clothes and bathe himself, he will bear his iniquity. The Lord says, it's, it's like, you know, there's a ritual to go through to respect the fact that this animal died. You can now eat it. It's okay. You'll be impure until the evening. Take a bath, wash your clothes, move on. Now, here's, here's the question, okay? Over and over and over again, we saw this no drinking blood, no drinking blood thing. Who is drinking blood? And the answer was in this time and in this part of the world, Almost everybody. It's a very, very common pagan worship practice. The drinking of blood. See, again, blood is life. It's this, it's this mysterious, almost, you know, in the, in the ancient world, it's almost like this magical liquid that provides life. And by drinking it, you then get more life in yourself. The mentality among pagans as they would worship is, I'm literally gaining more life. I'm, I'm, I'm increasing my, my heart points, you know, in Zelda or whatever. It's like I'm, I'm literally just, I'm gaining, I'm drinking, I'm, I'm getting, this is what's going to give me life. And the Lord says, it does not work that way. The Lord says, the blood is really important. The blood is extremely important, but it's not for that. 
The blood is for substitution. Did you catch that word? The Lord says, you, you bring the blood. Although you are guilty, although I could rightly judge you, the blood of the animal will serve as a substitution and you do not receive condemnation. You do not receive judgment. The blood of the animal will be substituted for you and you can receive mercy and forgiveness and cleansing. So that's what blood is for. And the Lord says the blood is for atonement. It's for, it's for setting everything right. It's for washing you clean, not only of the wrongs that you have done, but the wrongs that have been done against you. The blood is brought in and the blood is given to the priest and he will, he will splatter the altar and he will sprinkle the blood and it's a symbolic washing and a rinsing that you are forgiven and everything has been made right. But it's not for drinking because you don't get your life from the blood of an animal. God says you come and you get your life from me. Bring the fellowship offering to me. Bring the meat of the animal to me. Let's share a meal together. And God says, I want you to derive your life from me. Blood is important because blood is life. Blood is important because blood is life. It symbolizes life. And God is saying, you, you bring it to me, you treat it humanely because I am the God who gives you life. Now, here's a question. I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to shift out of the ancient Near Eastern world and I want to bring it up to the year, what year is it? 2022. I want us to be in the present right here and right now because I would be willing to bet several Ryan Gosling movies worth of time that nobody in here has really ever just drank a cup of blood. I don't actually want to know. I'm not actually asking. Please don't raise your hands. But it's, just, it's such a foreign sort of a thing. But, but, are there things that we do to grasp for more life? Are there things that we do to try to improve our lives? Are there things that we do to try to gain a sense of control over our lives? So think about your life. What, what even is your life? What, would you do? How, what, are we, what are we talking about? I believe that when we talk about life, there's three general layers that we're talking about. Three levels. The first layer would be the highest layer, the, the, the spiritual, Right? The spiritual layer, why, you know, why is there existence? Why is there something rather than nothing? Nature, the fine-tuning of the universe that makes it so we can live. Why is there breath in my body and, and, and blood in my veins? Even non-religious people, people who don't follow Jesus, they talk about this. Maybe it's just the universe, right? The, the, the universe exists. People talk about life, like just life, big picture life, capital L life. The second layer, though, that we talk about our lives is what I'm calling the layer of the practical. Your life is provision. You got a job, a shelter, food, clothing, all of those practical sorts of things that you need for life. The third layer is the layer of the personal. The relationships that you have the things that, that you feel, the emotions you experience, the things that give your life meaning. Why was, why was I put here on planet Earth? The, the personal layer of life. Now, I would argue a couple of things. I would argue that all three of these layers are present in what we just read in Leviticus 17. Obviously, the spiritual layer is present. 
Because there's all this talk about, you know, sacrificing to the Lord and not worshiping false gods and demons. There's all this spiritual level happening. There's also the practical level happening, talking about hunting and cooking and finding food and, and all of that practical sort of stuff of life. But the personal layer is also going on there as well. All this language about being cut off from the people of Israel. That's like your identity. That's your people that you belong to. It's, it's what does it mean to be an Israelite? What does it mean to belong to this covenant community of faith? All three layers are present in Leviticus 17. Now, the second thing I would argue is that in our culture, we are very prone to separate layers two and three from layer one. Our practical and our personal lives are very easily divorced from the life that matters, the spiritual life. Think about when, when somebody walks up to you and says, oh, you know, meeting somebody new on the street or you know, at a coffee shop. So tell me about your life. Tell me about your life. What's the most common thing that a person would likely respond with? Something about your work, your job? Oh, well, you know, I, I work here, I do, I'm a student, or I, whatever. Or, or what else? What else might be very common? Well, tell me about your life. Well, I, I live so, in, you know, I live in Edmonds, I live in Linwood, I live in Tennessee for some reason, or I, you know, whatever, like, I live, uh, I'm done, I'm officially done, I'm all done. Uh, you know, or, or like, oh, tell me about your life. Well, I'm married, I've got four kids, I, you, know, I've, 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 you know, I've got a, a friend group that I hang out with, or maybe your hobbies, right? We talk about those things. M- very rarely, if you were just meeting somebody, oh, tell me about your life. Man, my life is hidden with Christ in high, on high. <laughs> oh, okay, weirdo, right? It's like, <laughs> we, we tend to focus on these lower two layers but I think Leviticus 17 is calling us to say, here's my life. Here's, here's everything about my life as an integrated whole. My spiritual life, my practical life, my personal life, anything that my life consists of is to be lived in the face of God. Consider some things about the practical life that Jesus said. Jesus spoke about our practical life in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. What does he say? He says, don't worry about your what? Your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what clothes you're going to wear. He says, look, isn't your life more than those things? Isn't your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, the Gentiles run around after all that stuff. And look, your father knows that you need those things. They're not bad things. But Jesus says what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So Jesus says, yeah, your practical life matters, but don't disconnect it from what's more important, your spiritual life. Or or James, the brother of Jesus, in his short letter that that bears his name, James says, look, you guys, you who say, oh, I'm going to go to such and such a town and spend a year there and and live and make a profit and I'm going to do all this business, I'm going to make all this money. What does James say? He goes, what is your life? You're just a puff of smoke that appears for a brief little moment and then vanishes. He says, what you should say is, if it's the Lord's will, my business, I'm going to go do this and that, such a thing. He says, connect your work life to your spiritual life. Don't disconnect them. Don't live at the layer of the practical and ignore the layer of the spiritual. What about the personal life? What about the inner world? 
What about those relationships and those things that, that give your personal life? I mean, well, Jesus spoke about that too. In Mark chapter eight, in the middle of a series of interactions that Jesus has with the religious leaders, he says these shocking words. He says, the person who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves their son or their daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he says, anyone who finds his life, his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Now, question. This is not a trick question. Is Jesus advocating that we break the fourth commandment and dishonor our father and mother? Not a trick question. No. Is Jesus saying that uh, those who are blessed to be parents should in fact exasperate their children and despise their children? Is that what the Lord is saying? No. What Jesus is saying is if you find your life in your familial relationships, that's a flimsy foundation. I, I hear this language from people. Oh, my family is my life. I literally have heard that phrase from people. My family is my whole life. They're my everything. Family is important. Parents, your kids are awesome. I get along with your kids really well because sometimes I have their maturity level. I love hanging out with kids. Don't make your kids your entire life. Jesus says he is to be your life. Love your kids. Serve your kids. Don't make that be your life. Kids, listen to me, kids, youths, your parents are awesome and they're right all the time like 98% or more of the time. They are right. You should listen to them. You should love them. You should obey them. But even at a young age, you need to learn how to make Jesus be more important than your parents. Jesus says, don't make the personal life. He says, connect it to me, connect it to God. Or Paul, the apostle Paul, one more example. The apostle Paul, in Galatians and in Philippians, he talks about all the things that used to give his life meaning. In Galatians, he says, you know my former way of life, my former life that I used to live? Man, I was, whew, I was, I was some, I was a really good Jew. I was advanced in Judaism beyond many of my peers because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. Over in Philippians, he's like, man, I, 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 was, I was, you know, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. You know, he's like, he's like, I had so much identity built up in being a good Jewish zealot, persecuting people who follow Jesus. This is what I was put on earth to do until Jesus showed up. I had to reorient my entire life. Everything that my life revolved around, had to change, had to pivot, had to be re-examined. I had to go away to Arabia for three years and just rethink everything in the light of Jesus now being the Messiah. What is your life? Where do you seek life? Where do you go to give your life meaning? In our culture, we don't drink the blood of an animal. But boy, we might try to you know, we use the language like suck the life out of a friendship or out of a romantic partner or just keep just staying at work hour after hour after hour to get every possible dollar you could so that you could build up your life to feel secure, to feel at peace. You know, Jesus, 
use lots of shocking metaphors, even the one I just read about hating your father and mother. But there is no more shocking metaphor that Jesus ever said than in John chapter six. See, in John chapter six, Jesus has just done a miracle. He's just fed the 5,000. He's just provided a meal. He's just provided literal sustenance and life for these people. And guess what the people do? They come back for more. That's what free food will do for you. That's why they give you those like Chick-fil-A coupons. They know you're gonna come back and you're gonna order the milkshake next time. People always coming back for more food and they're going to Jesus and he's like, you don't, you don't really want the food. They're like, well, yeah, we really want the food because free food means more life. More life, better life, free food. It, it's easy formula, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're missing the point. The point is not the bread. It's a sign. It's pointing to something better. Jesus says to these people, he says, look, you don't want to just eat bread. Truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Think about good Jewish people that have been reading Leviticus 17 their whole entire life. You don't eat the, you don't drink the blood of an animal and you most certainly do not eat the flesh and drink the blood of a human being. That's like beyond, beyond, beyond out of limits. And here's Jesus. Yep, sorry. The only way to have real life is not the bread. It's not the loaves and the fishes. You have to ingest me. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink and the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me or some translations say abides in me. Like, like I'm, you're gonna, you're lit- I'm literally gonna live inside of you and you're gonna be connected as a part of my body inside of me. And there's something so much bigger than bread going on remains in me and I in him. The one who who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I will abide in him. And just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is saying, you know, you you don't drink the blood of a lamb, you drink the blood of the lamb. All of these laws in Leviticus 17 were pointing to the ultimate source of life, the one who would come. Friends, his name is Jesus. And he gave his life on the cross, crown of thorns, nail-scarred hands and feet, a spear thrust into his side, Jesus covered in blood. And what we interpret as this symbol of death, he wants us to see it as ultimate life. This is no mere death. This is a death of atonement. This is a death of substitution. This is a death that means we can have not just abundant life, but friends, eternal life. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering over death, giving his life to the world, and all who believe in him will have true life. Not just a personal identity of being hidden in him, not just practical matters taken care of by our Father, but everlasting spiritual eternal life. This is good news, friends. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, Paul Brand, the doctor that I quoted earlier, he he says this, He, he writes... He writes, connecting John 6 to John 15. He says, that same evening, Jesus used another metaphor. I am the vine, you are the branches, he declared. If you remain in me, and if I remain in you, if we abide together, you're gonna bear much fruit. 
Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's from John 15, but it's the same sort of language in John chapter six. Paul Brand says, surrounded by the vineyard-covered hillsides, hillsides that ringed Jerusalem, the disciples could more easily comprehend this metaphor. That John 6 metaphor was a tough one. <laughs> but here he's saying, this is an easier metaphor. The grape's got to be connected to the vine. A grape branch disconnected from the nutrients of the vine becomes withered, dry, dead, and useless for anything except for kindling. Only when connected to the vine can the branch bear fruit. And even in the doom-shrouded atmosphere of that last night at the meal from which the sacrament derives, the image of life wells up. For the disciples, the wine would symbolize Jesus' blood, which would vitalize them much as the sap does the grapevine. You and I must abide in Christ if we want to gain life. So I said earlier, blood is important because blood is life. Let me, let me rephrase it in the light of the gospel. I'll say it this way. Jesus is important because Jesus is life. And you and I must abide in him. We must be connected to him if we're to live that integrated, personal practical, spiritual life, the kind of life that we were designed to live. So that leaves us with one final question, one last question. How do we abide in Christ? Well, that just takes a lifetime of practice, doesn't it? But let me offer you three things I think that will help you to practice abiding in life, okay? First of all, at the level of your spiritual life, you've got to prioritize it. You must prioritize your spiritual life. Friends, this is literally what Jesus is talking about, all those practical things, right? Okay, this is church. You've got to be honest. Show of hands. How many of you have ever sat down maybe to like read your Bible or to pray or do some, some time with the Lord, and then instead you checked email? Raise your hand. I'm raising my hand too those emails will still be there. Those dishes in the sink, they'll still be there. You can feed your kids later. I'm just kidding, okay. It depends on, right, you might have to make dinner. But you know what I mean? Like, like all of those practical things will still be there. Your father is welcoming you to the entrance of the tent of meeting for a fellowship offering. Go, go, go Pray. Just sit quietly in his presence for 10 minutes and just focus on how awesome it is to be in the presence of God. Go, go read a psalm. Go, 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 go before your heavenly father. Prioritize it first. I get it. And I'm a pastor. I am sit down to like study and read the Bible and pray. I'm like, oh, more emails. Let me do those first. Let's help one another. Prioritize the spiritual life, okay? Number two, at the layer of the practical life, there's a lot of things we could do, but let me just offer you one insight on that. Practice gratitude. Practicing gratitude is one of the absolute best ways to connect the practical stuff of life to the bigger picture spiritual stuff. Now, many of us do this uh, at mealtime, 
right? The food comes out, here's the food. We stop, we pray. Thank you, God, that you gave us this food. That's awesome. You don't have to do it, but it's a really great way to practice what I'm talking about here. I had a friend growing up whose dad, whenever he would see you eating, he would look at you and he'd say, did you pray for that food? And if you said no, he'd say, I hope you choke. So that was a, that was a good dad. Um, <laughs> you remember John would always say that? <laughs> um, that was a random thought. Anyways, here's, here's a suggestion. Do that with other stuff besides your meals. I tried it this week when I was filling up my gas tank. I started praying and thanking the Lord for the vehicle he's blessed me with, for the ability to be able to fill up my gas tank. Uh, I did not know that there was a woman on the other side of the pump from me. I think she thought I was a lunatic because I was talking and praying out loud. And then I realized that she was there. I'm like, oh, I'll just, I'll just pray that quietly inside of my own head because the Lord can hear. Uh, what if you prayed over, like, you know, school is starting here soon and kids are getting like bags of back to school supplies or clothing or whatever. What if you sat down like, Lord, thank you for this bountiful harvest from the goodwill uh, that I have procured. What if you prayed over your bills? Lord, thank you that I have electricity. Thank you for this rent bill because I have a, a roof over my head. Practice gratitude in the practicals. Don't just pray over your meals. Try praying over your bills and your gas tank and other weird things. Last one. At the level of the personal, you need to prayerfully submit who you are, your identity, your purpose and belonging to Jesus Christ. Part of abiding in him means remembering that you are but one cell in the larger body of Christ. And while he knows you, he knows your personality, he knows your individuality, he knows how many hairs are on your head, he knows what scares you, all that sort of stuff is a beautiful part of knowing what part of the body we are, one, one body with many parts. At the same time, you have to hold that intention with what is in our culture now a crushing burden of self-direction and self-identity. I wish I had time to preach an entire extra sermon just on this point alone, but I, I'll, I'll just say it this way. A few months back during graduation season, some college decided to honor uh, that great American theologian, Taylor Swift, with an honorary doctorate. And so she got to get up and give the commencement speech. And she was being all inspiring for these 22-year-old college graduates and get out there and make a difference. And she says, you know, the whole thing, the, the exciting part is that it's all up to you. You have to determine who you are. You have to determine your life. It's all up to you. And I remember listening to that and just thinking, what a crushing, crushing burden. We are, we are swimming in an ocean of self-directed identity. I define who I am. I define what my life is. I define, and while maybe it feels fun or freeing for a moment, there is actually far more freedom in realizing that your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Only God truly knows you. Only God really gets you. You don't even know yourself because you're a confusing mess. At least the ones of you I've met. Yeah, leave Tennessee out of this, bro. What'd they ever do to you? <laughs> I hope these are helpful for you because in, in just a few minutes, we're gonna be done with this worship gathering. You need to go back to your life. 
You're going to have laundry. You're going to have bills. You got to get your kids ready for back to school this week. You're going to have, you know, a fight with your neighbor. Your lawnmower is going to break. Whatever it is, your life is in Christ Jesus. And in just a moment, as we come to the table to eat of the flesh and drink of the blood of Jesus, no, not scientifically, but you'd better believe in a very real spiritual sense, we are coming to be nourished by our Savior Jesus. I invite you to reflect on your life. Is my life hidden with Christ? Lord, I thank you for this word in Leviticus. Lord, even though the, the, the practices are very different, the underlying meaning is so relevant. Lord, forgive us when we grasp for life in sources apart from you. Lord, forgive us when we try to define our own life on our own terms. And Lord, instead, would you remind us that our lives are not our own. We are hidden with Christ. And Lord, even now, as we come to the table of the Lord and as we sing and as we prepare to go out into our lives, would you help us to more deeply abide in our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.